Friday, April 13th, 2012, started out like any other day. Brett Parker, a husband, father, never saw what was coming. Brett and Tammy lived in Ascot Estates in Irmo, South Carolina. A nice, safe neighborhood, great people, and highly spoken of. Brett was a bookie, and he was registered with federal gambling stamps. What many people never knew of, he paid taxes by law on his money. Brian Kapnerhurst, age 46, worked with Brett. They had arranged for Brian to come over so Brett could pay him back some near $20,000 that Brett owed Brian from his sports betting. For Brian to come over and be in Parker's home was not uncommon. Brett felt he was safe to be around. Since it was scheduled for this visit, nothing seemed odd at first to Brett, but then everything would quickly turn for the worse. Brett told deputies he was occupied in a room in the lower part of the home when Brian arrived, so Brett told Brian to go upstairs where Tammy was and he would be right up there. Shortly after Brian went upstairs, Brett heard multiple gunshots. Brett then ran upstairs where Brian confronted him at gunpoint. He said Brian then ordered him to go upstairs to the attic where the safe was and to open it up. Brett told police he had a hidden gun on top of the safe. He said he grabbed the gun and knew then it was me or him. The gun used to kill Tammy belonged to Brett, but had previously been given to Brian. It was confirmed Tammy was shot first. Now it took months to arrest Brett. A lot does not add up to me. By sled reports, there was no DNA from Brett on the bag and gun that Brian had. Brian had gun residue powder on his hands, front and back. Yes, Brian is dead, but many suspect he actually did it. Also in the sled report, the blinds that were supposedly touched and opened were proved to be inconclusive with no gunshot residue found. After research, I found the blinds could not even be touched. They are built into a double-pane glass, so the theory that Brett was peeping out the window does not match to me. Brett was made out in court, according to witnesses, to be a bad person. I'm afraid we will never know what really happened because we were not in the house at the time. But this case definitely has me questioning our system. Now here is my interview with Brett Parker. So Brett, tell me a little bit about yourself and where you grew up. I grew up in Columbia, off of Leesburg Road area. I was uh, born March 17, 1970. Grew up over there, and then we moved out to Chapin, South Carolina. I think it was around 82. I was about 12 or 13 years old. So basically, I went out there when I was in the eighth grade attended Chapin High School there. And that's the only school I went to at Chapin. I mean, I grew up playing sports. Uh, baseball was the main sport I played. 
high school, played football, basketball, baseball my freshman year. And then uh, my sophomore year, I messed up my knee, had torn my ACL playing football, so I had to miss baseball season. And after that, I kind of just stuck with baseball. That's pretty much what I did in high school was play baseball my last couple of years and wound up playing in college for two years, played at Winthrop and transferred to Newberry College and played a year and messed my knee up again and then had to give it up. So that's kind of what happened getting through all that. Did you graduate college? I didn't. I stayed at Newberry for three years and I probably had about a semester to go, a semester and a half to go, and I didn't finish. I got out and started working at a fitness center, doing some personal training stuff, and then I went and started working at Bell South Mobility. That's where I started working. So that was like pretty much my first, as they say, real, real job was working there. So. And Bell South, for people who don't know, what now is AT&T, correct? You know what? It was, what it was, it was Bell South Mobility. Then we went to Alltel Cellular. That would have been in 90, 94, I think, is when I started working there, 93 or 94. So it was really, you know, the old, old technology of phones and all. So cause I graduated from high school in 88. But yeah, I started working there, and that's actually where I met Tim. She was in another department. So you met Tammy after school? No, at Bell South Mobility. Well, I'll tell, yeah. It was Bell South Mobility, but that's where we met at that job. And how long did you guys date before you got married? Approximately a year, a little over a year. And where was she from? She was from Gilbert, Batesburg, Leesville area. I left Bell South Mobility once we pretty much started dating because they kind of shunned on that thing. I guess you really couldn't be dating co-workers or whatnot. So that's when I left and started working in poker machine business. And that's how I got into the booking business. So. so did you have any other jobs or you were just in the booking business? I was just doing that. And, you know, like I said, we were in the, Right at that time, the poker machines were legal, so we were doing poker machines and had video game machines, pool tables, and stuff like that. So we were doing that, too. I was helping that. Me and my father, we were working in that and doing the booking thing, so. The guy that came in your home, was his name Brian? Yes. I worked with my dad in the business until about 2007. So I was with him for about 10 years, something like that, when I started. Because I started working with him probably around, I would say, 95, somewhere in that area, 96. And then I went out on my own in 2006 or seven. I went out on my own, and that's when Brian came to work with me. Now, how did you know Brian before? He bet with me. Okay. He was betting with me, and then, right, that's how I got to know him. 
you got along with Brian, you trusted Brian, there were no issues there? No, not at the time. All he would really do was come over there and answer the phone. So he didn't really go out and pay off with people or collect money. You know what I mean? So it was basically, he just came over and answered the phones for me and helped me. And I mean, he'd check the tickets, as we call them, when people would place their bets or whatever, he would check the tickets and I would too. And we'd verify to make sure they're right. As far as like running around and doing stuff, no, because he had another job during the day that he worked Monday through Friday, so. So was Brian ever around your family? Yeah, well, because that's where we worked. I worked out of an office in our house. Okay. So, yeah, he was there every weekend. And you Every felt- weekend and uh, during the week a couple of times. He'd be there Thursday, Friday night, Saturday all day, and Sunday all day. And everything was fine. You felt safe with him being around your family then, right? I did. But like I said, at one time, there was a time in life that there was a problem with his wife. She wound up getting charged with some kind of embezzlement type thing where they stole money from her grandmother or something. I don't know the whole thing of it, but it was federally charged a few years before all of this had happened because they were in some financial problems from from him gambling but I didn't know about all this till later if that makes sense I didn't know to the whole extent of it until after a lot of this had happened so it was like he was in some problems before and somehow I don't know the whole story to it I mean I'm sure you can look it up and see through a federal case, but it was something to do with embezzlement of some pretty big money, 30000 or something like that. Did Brian ever serve any time for that that you know of? No, but I, I think it was his wife that was charged with that and later got out of it somehow, but or plea did something. And I don't know the whole story to it, but it's, like I said, you can probably look it up as far as that goes, but it was something that she said that she did it because of his gambling debt or something and I never really read all of it on it I can't even tell you what year it was I mean they even mentioned it in the trial and they said that you know it was like maybe seven or eight or maybe nine years before all this happened but had some problems and right before all this happened he was saying the same thing that she was spending a bunch of money and all this and they were living credit card to credit card and he was tired of it. And I mean, he told me that. And I even mentioned it to my dad before. I don't know, because I was feeling kind of weird about the way the things, some of the stuff that he was saying as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Your relationship with Tammy and the kids, it seemed to be well. You were living in Ascot, which was a really nice place. Would you say right. that you had any complaints in your life then? No, I didn't. We moved there. We'd only been there for a couple of years. You know, we had lived, we started off in Friars Gate, and we moved to a little bigger house, still in the same area. And then we moved out there just a couple of years before all this had happened. But no, we were fine. But again, that whole lifestyle of that gambling and stuff, and can't justify cheating and 
I can't ever justify doing that. But as far as us getting along, we didn't have arguments. I think we both kind of, with her working with the forest and me with the booking business, we put our work and money and stuff before our relationship. We made sure our kids were well taken care of. And just like anything else, money doesn't always mean everything's going to be some things I guess you take for granted just because you're living a certain way you feel like everything's fine but you still have to work on a relationship as far as being together communicating and you can't put other things first which is what we did but like I said we didn't have any problems as far as arguing and stuff like that could have been a lot better because she was a real good person was there any cheating uh, going on between you two? Yeah, I mean, said that, admitted to the, the cheating. And, you know, after all this had happened, it come out that she had had an affair. And I told my kids, I have to take responsibility for that because, you know, at the end of the day, I should have put our relationship ahead of work and ahead of monetary things. Sometimes you get caught up in that whole world of the money, the gambling and all that and you neglect the person that you shouldn't. And when I say neglect, I mean you just don't show them the attention that they deserve. Unfortunately, I can't take that back, and I wish I could. How old were you when this incident happened? The incident at the house you're talking about? Uh Uh-huh. I was 42. And how old are you now? 42, and Tammy was 44. 51. Okay, tell me what happened on Friday, April the 13th of 2012. I was working, you know, I also had a job with a medical supply company that we sold durable medical equipment, so hospital beds, wheelchairs, and stuff like that. So I had to go out that morning to deliver some equipment. I had to go to a couple of my places that I go to, then I had some equipment to deliver later on that afternoon so i came back home because brian was supposed to come over there because basketball season had just ended a couple weeks before a week before that and we had actually went on a cruise me and tammy the kids and my mom all of us went on a cruise so we just got back so i had to meet up with him to settle up and pay him for working with me for that time we always showed up at the end of the year. Tammy was coming home. We were going to eat lunch, and then he was going to come over there. That day, I was downstairs. Tammy was upstairs in the office, and he came in the door through the garage or whatever. When he came in, he went upstairs, and I was finishing up in the bathroom. You know, stood up, and I was getting ready to wash my hands. I heard shots or heard a pop-pop noise. So as I came out, I came running up the stairs, and the way the stairs are there, they kind of go up from both sides, and then they'll split, and you can go both ways up the stairs. So as I got to that little landing area, he was standing at the top of the stairs and had a gun pointed my way. And I won't say it on your show, but he said, go to the effing safe. So at that point, I didn't know what was going on. So with him, with the gun on me as I come up the stairs, he's telling me to go to the F and say, hey, no, as I walk by, I see the 
the office is right there, and I could see Tammy's feet. That's all I could see because it was in a bathroom. There's a bathroom right there, so she was basically all I could see was the feet. So when I walked by, I'm like, as soon as I saw that, I just was like, "What the hell are you doing?" Excuse my language, but I mean that's and he just said, "Go to the and save." So anyway, so I'm trying to describe it because of the way the house is. You have to go through a big room over the garage, which was pretty big room. And there's a, a storage area that has a door to it. And the storage area is like where the roof slants. So when you go into it, you can't really stand all the way up straight. You kind of have to lean because of the way it slopes. And that's where I had a safe. At, that was bolted to the ground and the only reason that I had a safe there at that time was because a year before this my house was broke into over there and they stole a bunch of my wife's jewelry stole some chains like you know how you have chains and bowls and stuff mm-hmm. stole all that stole all of her good jewelry and this was a year before that 2000 so anyway I was out for my birthday when it happened to make a long story short, I'm trying to explain. That's the reason why I got the safe put in because of that. Mm-hmm. So as we go into that door, into that storage area, he's behind me at, by that door. And as I get to my safe, I had a blanket on top of it, and I had a headboard in front of it, so it just didn't sit out there where you could see it. But I had a gun on top of the safe right there with a blanket's covering it some and, and when I kneeled down to, to act like I was opening the safe I turned and, and shot he went down then I ran and checked on Tammy and I ran into the room where she was and she wasn't moving or nothing and then I called 911 so that's what happened that day it's safe to say that you definitely felt like he was going to kill you and you had to do what you had to do for your own life yeah, yeah. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what was said. Even the, the officers there, when I got back to my kids, they even told my family and my parents and all that if I didn't do what I did, then I probably would have been dead too. So, mm-hmm. yes. So how did the yeah. blinds get residue on them from gunpowder? Okay, the blinds that you're talking about, did not have gunshot residue on them. And I would love to be able to send you that paperwork. I would love to get my mom to send that to you. But they didn't have gunshot residue on them. They did test on them. Those, the blinds that, that you see in the dateline or whatever are between two panes of glass and the actual slide that is used on that, there was no gunshot residue on them. The blind that was that they found one speck of, that took an electron microscope to see, they found one speck was in the laundry room, which is right below where Brian was when I shot him, right? So that was right below him, and they found that 43 days later when they came back in there. So it was 43 days after that when they found one speck, and it was not on those blinds. That was a lie, and I have all the paperwork to prove that. Okay, yeah, I think that's what Dateline TV show was right. trying to put out there. Okay. They did. That was wrong. They did test on the slides and everything, and, they, and it was 
inconclusive, no residue found, and all that. So that was a lie. So how many times was Tammy shot? I think it was seven times that he shot. And does and, he have uh, enough residue on his hands to support that many shootings? Yeah, he had more gunshot residue on his hands than I did. And I shot four times. The expert that took the stand even said that if I had shot all 11 shots, that I would have been covered in gunshot residue. But what the amounts on each one of our hands warrants the amount of time shot. The weapon that Brian used, was it yours or was it his? It was a nine millimeter that I had given him. It was like a couple months before all of this. My uncle had passed away and he had a bunch of guns and rifles and all kind of stuff. And so anyway, those were like given to different family members. And I didn't care for that nine millimeter because I had a 38, which was a revolver, and then the Judge Taurus, which was a revolver. So I did not like that whole clip thing with it. And so I had given that to him a couple of months prior. That's what caused the controversy because my daughter was up there when he got it, and then when she took the stand and said something about it, they naturally said that she was lying, that she was just saying that and I didn't even want her to take the stand because I didn't want her to have to go through that. But she was up there when it was given, and there's also another person that has seen him with it, except two or three people have. And people have actually written to the attorney general and stuff and said that one guy who was in the gambling business, he uh, was told that if he came forward with that information, that he would be tied up in the gambling and his life would be made miserable. And he actually sent an email with all of that on there to the judge, to, to everybody that needed to see it. And nobody did anything about it. And he was threatened. I mean, it's just not right. You can make up a story and have it fit however you want it to fit. But the facts are facts. And I mean, the fact is that he's got gunshot residue on his hands for a reason. He was still married at the time, right? Yes. Did his wife ever have anything to say? Did she take the stand? Yes, yeah, she did. She took the stand. One of the craziest things that I had heard was that the next day after this had happened, they originally said I wouldn't get the house back probably till Tuesday, be a few days while they did their test, whatever all they had to do. But they couldn't get into my safe, so I had to go and open it for them. One of the things that was said was that before he left that day, I guess they talked to his wife, and before he had left, she claims that he told her to call 911 if she didn't hear from him in an hour. And I was like, well, that's kind of odd because that just makes no sense to me. And then my question was, well, did she call 911? They said, no, they had trouble finding her for a while. I said, that makes no sense to me. I said, because if I went and told my wife that, hey, I'm going over here to see somebody, but if you don't hear from me, call 911 in an hour, she'd be like, where the hell are you going? You ain't going nowhere. 
Right. I'm sure you would be the same way if your husband came to you or whatever and would say that. The officer said the same. He said, yeah. He said, my wife probably said the same thing. I said, so, sounds like to me they're trying to set up an alibi or something. I don't know what the hell they're doing. That's the dumbest statement I've ever heard. I just couldn't even believe that was being said. When they're tell, asking me what happened, I tell them. And then, like, the next day, they're like, well, why didn't you tell us about the girl that you had sex with? I said, because that had nothing to do with what happened in that house. It was like they're reaching. I never could understand because that had nothing to do with anything. It's just a crazy situation that, that some of the stuff that was said, like that statement of him making, and then, then all of a sudden they see how crazy that statement is. Then they say, well, he... He knew that Tanya was going to be there, so he felt okay going over there. I'm like, that just don't make no sense. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm just be honest with you, if I thought somebody was going to do something to me, I wouldn't go to the house. Right. What were your charges? I'm charged with basically double murder. They charged me with killing Tammy and killing him. And give me two life sentences without parole for something I didn't do. So you'll never get out? Nope. Not unless somebody tries to help me because all the evidence is right there that proves everything. By their theory, the safe is and all that, he's standing right by a door. So by their theory, I'm having to tell him, don't run out that door and wait till I kneel down and let me shoot you. It makes no sense. He's behind me. It's frustrating when it's when you've got all of the evidence in the world that proves that proves it. I mean, it's just it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Do you have any regret with anything? The one thing that that I do regret is naturally the the cheating. I wish I'd have never got into that business because that whole lifestyle of gambling and sure there's money in it but you realize that money's not everything and you realize it's not a good thing to be in a business like that people you attract the people you bring around you not everybody's gonna be a good person because it's just not a good business i mean yeah so yes i regret being in that business is there anything you want to say to anyone that all this has happened because it's affected so many families and it's going to continue to affect families for years down the road. And I hate that. I hate it for everybody's family, Brian's family, my family, Tammy's family. And I really hate that the media has played such a big part in it because it can hurt people. It has hurt people. And, I mean, it's ruined lives. It's ruined my life. It's ruined everybody's life. It's even close to it. I hate it for everybody involved. I do. I really do. Thank you for the interview today and your time. If there's anything else you'd like to add, you can do so at this time. Thank you for letting me share my story, and I sure appreciate you letting me do that. We are now going to pause for a brief word from our sponsors. 
Are you looking for an extremely fun and stylish up-to-date salon? Then the color bar is the place for you. Our slogan is too glam to give a damn. The color bar knows their colors and can slay anything. Located in Chapin, South Carolina, near the heart of Lake Murray, our stylists stay up to date on all styles, cuts, and colors. Call for your free consultation at 803-932-HAIR. That's 803-932-HAIR. We can't wait to meet you. Are you considering a move in 2022? Then this message is for you. Meet George Simmons from EXP Realty. He is the top agent on one of the top real estate teams serving Lake Murray and the surrounding counties here in South Carolina. After serving 20 years in the military and 10 years in law enforcement, George continues to serve the Lake Murray community by providing superior real estate representation. Call today for your free home valuation at 803-429-3337 or visit online at buyorsellakemurrayhomes.com. We look forward to serving you. If you would like more information on sponsorships, or if you would like to reach us for anything else, please email us at MurderMondaysLLC at gmail.com. In other podcasts that I've been listening to, it says that you owed Brian about $21,000. Is that correct? That is what he had made that year. But what they're not telling you is that there was a piece of paper that was not put into evidence in that trial that was put into evidence in the gambling trial, the federal trial. It listed by week how much we made during basketball season. But at the bottom of that page, it showed where Brian had been paid. It added up to $13,500. So that had already been paid to him, $13,500. And normally I paid him at the end of the year, which is what that was. That was uh, football and a little bit of the basketball, but the basketball had just ended. So when he was coming to the house that day, he was supposed to get another 5000 which would have put it at like 18500 Then we had some more money owed that we hadn't collected yet because basketball had just ended, and he was going to get the rest, which would have did add up to 21000 But I did not owe him 21000 because he'd already been paid, and that money that was in my pocket that this all happened, which was right at $5,000, was for him. So it's untrue that he was coming over there for a total of $21,000. That's not true then, correct? Very much so. Okay. That, that is not true, no. Okay. It's being said that before Brian came to your house that he called your father before coming over. Is that true? I'm not sure if he called the day of or the day before, but I know that he did call him. And I don't know why he called about... There's a lot of weird things that happened with him, them talking about him calling, just like the fact that the next day after this had happened, the police actually 
was talking to me and said that Brian had told his wife before he left that if she didn't hear from him in an hour to call 911. I said, well, did she call 911? They said, no. I said, well, why not? And they said, well, we couldn't really get in touch with her for a while. It took us a while to get in touch. But yeah, I, I think he did talk to my dad, but it's crazy. So it was over 40 days before you were arrested, correct? It was actually 97 days. Okay. What happened is Sheriff Locke called my dad and asked me to turn myself in. And I had my dad drive me out to Richland County off of Two Notch Road and turn myself in. So 40 plus days later, they say gunshot residue was found on the front door blinds. After my research, the blinds in the home were against double pane glass, so they couldn't physically be touched. They could only be touched by opening and closing with a slide handle. And in the sled reports, it says that there is inconclusive and no gunshot residue found. So why are they saying that there's gunshot residue on them? The dateline, they even said it in the courtroom, but I think the media took it as those blinds but when they said that that was actually passed around the sled report and shown to the jury and shown everybody that no there was nothing on those blinds mm -hmm. the blinds that they said they found a speck of gunshot residue on was in the laundry room 43 days later not the day after this happened or the day of but 43 days later they came back in with another search warrant and went through the house again and supposedly found one speck in the laundry room on the blinds, which is where Brian's body was above it, where there's vents and everything. And plus, you already had a bunch of people walking in and out of it. But as far as the blinds that they said looked out of or whatever, there was nothing on them. There was nothing. It is said that Leon Lott called the Secret Service in on you and your father for illegal gambling services. Is this true? That, I don't know, because really the only time the gambling was ever became an issue was after this had happened. Okay. So, to be honest with you, why, I mean, I can understand why they got involved with it, but as far as him calling it in... I don't know, because that day this happened, I told them the business I was in. But again, I had a federal gambling stamp. I paid taxes on that for five years. Actually, the federal gambling stamp was something that they kind of knew about but didn't know about. But I had five years of tax returns where I sent them, you know, checks and every uh, month for so five years. Was it actually illegal for you to be doing it since you were paying taxes? The way the federal gambling stamp read, now I think it's changed since my trial and since all this, but it used to read basically, I can't say this is word for word because it's been so long, but it would read that if you're in a state where it's illegal to accept sports wagering, you have to spend 2% of every bet you take in. It's not what you win or lose, but each month, I had to send in 2% of all the bets I took in. 
730. You can look it up. But I think they changed the wording now where they don't put that in there about if you're in a state where it's illegal. Mm-hmm. Because the way it also read was if you're in a state where it's legal, you have to spend 0.02%, not 2%, but 0.02%. So it was different if you're in a state where it's illegal. Can you tell me why your father was kicked out of the courtroom? What had happened was somebody had talked to the jury and supposedly had said something to one of the jury members as to saying, don't y'all think y'all should be sequestered for this trial? Well, the next day morning, whenever we came into court, the judge said somebody had talked to the jury judging them said it was my dad so they kicked him out of court well it was proven that the guy who actually talked to the jury actually called back because they knew the other people knew who it was because my dad was with my family the whole time the guy called back talked to the judge talked to the lawyers everybody and said it was me and the judge said well we'll revisit this on monday or whatever when we come back to court and they decided that even though it wasn't him, they weren't going to let him back in court, so he never got to come back to the courtroom. So he was kicked out for no reason. Were your fingerprints found on the bag that Brian brought into the home? No. Or my DNA was not on it. Okay, there's lots of talk about the bathroom and the toilet. And there was a female officer that went in I guess it struck her attention that the toilet seat was up instead of down if you were using the restroom. And that became a whole big issue. So can you tell me why the toilet seat would have been up? Yes. At the time, my son, who was five, any time that I used the bathroom, as soon as I finished, I stood up and I always pull the seat up before I wash my hands. The reason being, if you know, if you have a kid, if he comes inside, he runs right in there to pee. That's where he goes every day. And he is not going to lift the seat. He's going to pee with it down or whatever. And to be honest with you, sometimes he may even pee outside. That's just a five-year-old. So out of habit and knowing what he does, I did that. Every time, as soon as I finish using the bathroom, I raise the seat up because he's going to come running in here, and that's what he's going to do. Okay, so you didn't hear gunshots when you were still on the toilet? No, no, and I told them that in the courtroom. The podcast that I'd been listening to, of course, and the Dateline show, you know, states otherwise, so I wanted you to clarify your side on that. If that was staged, as they tried to make it sound, why wouldn't there gunshot residue on that then? If I stage all this stuff. Right. They can't have it every way. That's what kind of gets me so frustrated is that they want to sell this story. But when you look at the facts, that story they're saying, don't it don't work. Is there anything else that stood out that day about Brian or anything at all well uh the, there was one thing that was kind of odd and i had to check on it to see if it was 
if it's happened the way I thought, was that when Brian used to come to the house when he was working or whatever, he always took his shoes off before he came in the house. And that included when he went to my dad's house. And come to find out that day, he did not take his shoes off. He had his shoes on, and that's the first time he's ever, I believe, worn his shoes into my house because he always took them off. So to me, that was kind of odd that he did have his shoes on that day. Were there any photos of him in the crime scene with his shoes on? Yes, there was. Yes, there was. friends through our parents before he moved to Chapin and we became friends at the temple Jamil Temple because our dads were Shriners and then he started going to Chapin by I think about 7th or 8th grade so he was nice he played sports popular kid do anything in the world for you nice guy nicest guy you'll ever meet so you watched the Dateline thing that they made on Brett? I did. And how do you feel that... That it betrayed Brett? Yeah. Kind of mixed emotions. Everybody knew that his daddy was into gambling. I didn't know Brett was into gambling as bad as his daddy was. Do you think that Brett actually killed Tammy? I'm torn. Mm -hmm. I went to her funeral. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen Brett in a while or his family, but... I went because of Brett and the kids, because I really didn't know Tammy. When I went up there and hugged him, he completely broke down. And people handle things differently. This is the first case that I've done that I truly feel like he didn't shoot Tammy. I honestly don't think he did it. But probably if he would have stayed in the house, the way police perceive things is how they view it and how it's going to be portrayed regardless Mm -hmm. of anything else and probably if he would have stayed in the house by Tammy's side until the police got there instead of being in the driveway Mm -hmm. maybe it would have been better portrayed I don't know to me I could never see Brett killing anybody Yeah, he's too much like his mama He's too much like Miss Linda. He has a too much of a kind heart. Do I think they were having trouble? Absolutely. Do I think all marriages have trouble? Absolutely. And unfortunately for Brett, his came to light because of the trial. I think the way Brett said it probably happened that way. The only problem is Brett was the only one allowed to tell the story. So therefore, he was the one guilty. I think that's how it happened, and I think that's, I mean, to understand Brett a little bit better, which you talk to him, he just was never that way. He played baseball. I mean, he had two kids. I've listened to it. I've watched it over and over, and there was gunpowder residue on Brian's hands. Yes, there wasn't on like on, on Brett's hands. The only way gunpowder residue could have been on his hands is if the gun went off when he was holding it. Right. 
So how can you say he didn't do it? You could say he killed Brian. Okay, that's fine. He admitted that. I truly believe this man is serving his life in prison, and he did not kill his wife. I honestly don't think he did either. But now, I know one of the cops that were at the case, and he said that there was gun residue on the blind. I don't know that. I don't know that to be true. So the gunpowder residue that was on the blind... So they're saying the security cameras picked up somebody looking out the blinds before Brian got there. And they're saying that Cammy was dead before Brian arrived. Yeah, it's just, it's so hard. And the only person that you have to tell the truth is Brett, and he already looks guilty because he didn't tell about the affairs. Right. But he was trying to make himself not look guilty, and he ended up making himself look worse. Right. I don't claim to know everything, but I do know he is a good guy. friend of Brett's um, since high school. He's about 15 years old, I think. I think I was 15. He's about 14. We've been friends ever since. And what happened was, um, as, as you know, a lot of stuff that's that's going on, they were saying it's about him doing insurance money. He just admitted that Brett didn't even want the, the policy. Tammy wanted the policy. Brett put it in the kid's name. For them to say that he, he used the money for gambling, kids wouldn't get the money until they was 18. I think his daughter was like 14 at the time. Zach was four. I noticed when I got on the stand, I had wrote a statement to Kevin Harris saying that I had met Brian about a month before all this happened. Brett told me that he had been robbed two years prior to this. And what was strange was the simple fact that Kevin Harris, he was the one that found the jury box in the empty lot next door, which was kind of strange to me. An empty lot, and you just happened to find the jury box. They said it was the inside deal when Brett got robbed. He got robbed for like over $24,000, I think, for cash and jewelry. What did you have to take the stand for? Well, they had me get, basically, basically they just had me as a character witness, I guess, because I thought that's what they were going to have me on the stand talking about. About Kavanaugh's um, unloading the gun and handing it to me. Because I wrote a sworn statement for door for that. And all of his friends saying that he would never touch a gun. Never said anything about that. When I got on the stand, all they did exact people me and Brett friends. I mean, that was kind of strange on my part. And so that's why I, after all that, I was thinking, I said, well, maybe his lawyer was on the, on the take or something. Mm-hmm. Because I was never asked that. And then when I went on Dateline and talked about it, everybody asked me why, why I didn't say anything about it. I said, well, you know, when you understand, I can only say what they asked me. Brett, he's got a bad deal, but I don't think they really came after Brett until they found he was a bookie. So they weren't going hard on him until they found that out? Until they found out he was a bookie. Then they went after him, because I don't even think he was a suspect at first. Stuff don't seem to add up, that's for sure. If you look at Brett's stuff, it's stuff not right. I mean, look at that.
Welcome back to another episode of Murder Mondays with Nicole. Walterboro, South Carolina is a small, low country town filled with heritage and overflowing with southern hospitality and charm. The friendly down-home atmosphere captivates visitors as well as all who have made it their home. On Saturday, May 27, 1978, 26-year-old Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel was brutally attacked and murdered in her Walterboro, South Carolina home. Residents of Walterboro would say about Elaine's murder, things like this just don't happen in a town like ours. You hear about it elsewhere, but not here. But it did happen here. Elaine was found by her roommate, Nancy Hooker, and Nancy's friend, Billy O'Brien. Retired sled agent and Arthur Rita Schuler has published a book on the May 27, 1978 murder of Walterboro resident Elaine Fogel. Fogel was found that Sunday morning dead in her home by her roommates and a friend about 1.45 a.m. Fogel was covered in blood, partially nude on the living room floor, severely beaten and sexually assaulted. She had been strangled by a fire poker bent around her neck. Her death began an investigation that lasted for 37 years, finally solved due to the efforts of Schuler and now Chief Deputy Gene Johnson. Their investigation resulted in the arrest of Willie Butterfield, who is still held in a mental institution. Her book chronicles the various facts, evidence, and efforts of local law enforcement and SLED to solve the murder over the years. At the time of the murder, Schuler was supervisor of SLED Forensic Photography Lab. In 1978, all photos were on film. Schuler had been with SLED for just seven months when she received the film from the crime scene from the Walterboro Police Department. She worked for SLED for 24 and a half years before retiring in 2001. A strained sensitivity and visual moment came over her as she viewed the photographs. She noticed that Elaine and herself had very similar taste in dress. Schuler says this in her book. She had personal items in her home that Schuler had in her home. Country things like a butter churn, stone jugs, and a hand-operated corn sheller. That connection with Elaine stayed with Schuler over the years. She was persistent, determined to one day find her killer, even after her retirement in 2001. But while the evidence existed in 1978, a way to identify an unknown suspect did not. Linking the Fogel evidence with new technology was not successful until Schuler and Johnson's investigation in 2015. When Johnson started his cold case investigations, Police Chief Wade Marvin gave Schuler permission to help. That permission gave her access to records and evidence she did not previously have. Together, she and Johnson worked to re-examine the case files and apply today's technology to the evidence. The result was... Willie Butterfield. Her book contains fascinating information on the murder, the evidence, the people involved in the investigation over the years, Elaine's family, and Schuler's interaction with them, photos, how she and Johnson eventually closed the case after just four months. This was a 37-year-old cold case that Schuler brought quickly to an end. Schuler's books are available on Amazon, Arcadia Publishing, and the History Press.
I would like to introduce and welcome my friend Rita Schuler, retired sled agent and author of Small Town Slings. Welcome, Rita. Tell us how you had the start back in the day. Well, when I left high school, I decided I wanted to be in the medical profession or law enforcement profession. So I chose medical profession. And I went to a two-year training course at the Orangeburg Regional Hospital for X-ray technology. And I was registered as a certified X-ray technologist. And I worked in that for approximately 13 years. And during that time, I got interested in the investigation of criminal cases as they came into the hospital, because back then we didn't have DNA and we didn't have forensics. It probably wasn't even a word back then. And got my interest in the law enforcement part while I was training for x-ray technology. And during my two years at Orangeburg Hospital, we sometimes would get called down to the morgue to x-ray a victim that had been shot in the Orangeburg area or surrounding areas to maybe find the bullet or the knife or any weapon that was used because back in 1963, forensics wasn't too much of a word back then. So it had not been advanced to any position of just being forensic technology. So we had to go down to the morgue when a victim came in to help with the investigation. And um, I remember the first time that they told me when I was a student that there was a body in the morgue that needed to be x-rayed to try and find the bullet. And they told me I was going to be the one to go and I went, oh, gosh, yes. I said, oh, I'll be happy to go when they're going, oh, God, is this morbid or what? And I just became interested in that type of work, a little bit of law enforcement and fascination, I guess, because as a child, I remember going through cases with my mom and dad in the newspapers in our little country community, Orangeburg County, they would tell me about cases. I mean, the people had been killed or, or they died, and, and I was just interested in how other people could do this to somebody's body. And as far back as probably eight years old, I remember a case, and it still sticks into my mind, that uh, happened in Pamplico, which was about 100 miles from our home. And it was a case of two teenagers went out one night. They didn't come home. And then the families called the investigators and law enforcement the next day. And they went out the next day looking for the two, two persons. And what they found was actually the girl's body and she was laying in a very shallow grave covered with leaves at a place where teenagers would go park back then called the Bluff in Pamplico. 
And the interesting thing when mom and dad was telling me about this was that her head was missing. So she had been decapitated. So they first thought that the boyfriend was the person and he was missing and the investigation continued. And it, later on, they did find the boyfriend's body and her head in a well behind a lady's house. And the lady had told them that there was nothing down back there except a well. And a, a road that went one way and you had to turn around and come back out. And she was actually telling them about where to find those bodies because it ended up being her son-in-law who had done this. And a manhunt was put out and it took a couple of days and they found him in the woods. But at that time, that story just interests me so much that I just couldn't get it out of my mind. Now, we actually went over to the crime scene later on after it was all cleared away because it became a media mecca. And everybody wanted to go see where it happened. Well, of course we did too, because we followed it in the paper. Mom and daddy put my brother and I in the car along with my aunt and uncle, and we went over there to see what it was. And I remember walking through the, the cornfield going down to that well to look at where the well was and the ground was so hard from people walking through there. And that's when I had my little brownie camera around my neck. I had a hobby as a photographer. My brother and I did, you know, from day one when we could walk and use a camera. And that brownie camera I had around my neck and I, I took pictures of the well. Of course, the body had already been removed and, and the girl's head was removed. That probably was my first crime scene. And I got so interested in that and I just followed this all through the years. And when I finished high school, I went into x-ray training in Orangeburg, South Carolina, Orangeburg Regional Hospital. Tell me about your first day at SLED. Well, my first day at SLED was very interesting because that was October the 1st, 1977. After I left the hospital, I got kind of burnt out there. And forensics was becoming popular and we would go to seminars and uh, conventions and, and we would have courses that we could take. And I went to California to a seminar and it was a two week seminar and we could, we could elect which classes we wanted to take. And one happened to be forensic pathology and photography. And it was a two day course. And I went ahead and signed up for that because I was so interested in it. Even when we had breaks during that class, I just couldn't wait to get back in the class because it showed how photographs and also x-rays got into court to make the case. And on the way back from California, I said, I have got to be a part of this technology here. And, and that was around 1976. So when I got back, I was talking to one of my 
mechanics that was working on one of my x-ray machines. And, and I told him, I went to this seminar and I told him all about it. And he said, well, have you thought about calling SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division? And I went, you know, I really don't know too much about SLED. I, I kind of stayed away from law enforcement, but it was always in my mind. And he said, well, I know a guy that was in charge of the photography department over there. And I think they need a photographer over there now. And I went, hmm. He said, his name is Mickey Dawson. He has gone from the photography department and being in charge of the question documents department at SLED now. And I went, oh my God, I know Mickey. His wife is an x-ray technician and I've known her through the years. I said, I'll give him a call. And I did, and, and Mickey told me, he said, Rita, we do have an opening over here now. He said, but I'll tell you, it's not gonna pay as much as the hospital. I said, I don't care. I wanna come talk to you about this. And I did go and they did my background check and it checked out. So I was hired at SLED on October the 1st, 1977. And when I went in, they decided to take me around and show me and let me meet some of the investigators, and, and most of the investigators then were men. I was real interested in it, and they took me over to the crime scene area, which I was a part of the crime scene. The photography department was a part of the crime scene. And when they took me over there, they opened up a drawer, and it was a picture in that drawer of a head in a dishpan. And they said, Rita, you're gonna be working with cases like this. And I went, oh my God, I know that case. And they went, what? And I said, yep. I said, that case was back from 1958 in Pamplico, South Carolina. And the girl was decapitated and they found her head and the body in a well. And they went, oh my God, then I guess you want to see the rest of the case file. And I said, yes, I do. So they actually showed me the case file and took me out to the display center where they had the knife that he used to decapitate her head with. That's when I knew, I said, this is where I'm supposed to be. So Gwendolyn Elaine's murder was May 27, 1978. Yes. So you were already working with SLED. Yes. Tell me about that day. Okay, I had been working with SLED for only about eight months. As I said, I, I went in October the 1st, 1977. When her case came across my desk, of course, I was in charge of all the photography work that came in from any surrounding areas in the state that, that SLED was invited to go in to help with the crime scene investigation. And that was one thing back then. SLED had to be invited in because sometimes the locals could take care of it if it was kind of cut and dried and, and they didn't need SLED's expert assistance. And that particular case, SLED did not go to the crime scene investigation. They did send the dogs down, but the crime scene investigators did not go. So that meant that the Walterboro Police Department they processed the scene, they photographed, they even had a pathologist come in and he photographed the body as well. And back then that was a part of it too. The pathologist would come in and of course, 
Sometimes the coroner would come in. And in this particular case, too many people came into that crime scene because the city, and when it got out, a lot of foot traffic was in and out of there that probably shouldn't have been. On May 30th, 1978, Elaine's case and her crime scene photos came across my desk at SLED. And I had only been there for seven months. And as supervisor of SLED's forensic photography lab, it was my duty to take charge of all the film and photographs from agencies that submitted them to SLED. And a strange sensitivity and visual moment came over me as I viewed the photograph from Elaine's case. Her jeans were missing, but strangely, both of her shoes were still on. Her shoes were sparry topside loafers, just like I wore. She had personal items in her home that I had in my home. She had country things, a butter churn, stone jugs, and even a hand-operated corn chowder. And one of the guys from SLED, the investigator, he said, what the hell is a corn Rita? What it is, it is a type of iron apparatus, tool per se, that has metal spikes coming out from it, and it has a handle on it, and you let the corn dry on the ear and you would put that corn in this corn shelling, turn the handle, and the spikes would actually shell the kernels off the corn for you. Then the farmers would use them, use the corn to feed the pigs or the birds or, or whatever. And he said, well, I guess it's interesting to say that not everybody would have corn shelling in their house. And I said, yeah, that is true. I said, but Elaine and I both did. But my biggest shock was when I saw the fire poker that was wrapped around Elaine's neck and I had that same fire poker in my house. It just really crawled all over me too, where I almost felt a connection to Elaine Fogel at that time. And Elaine was also born in the same county that I was, Orangeburg County. And I lived out in the country. She lived in the city limits. But I just felt a strange sensitivity then that, you know, she was part of me, that I knew this lady. I've seen the pictures of her that they showed me at Yulian's, and y'all favor each other a lot. Now, when I met Elaine's sister, and she met me at the door, and she had a surprised look on her face when she met me at the door, and I didn't know exactly what to expect. And I'm like, oh, something wrong? And she said, oh, my God, you look like Elaine. Y'all could be sisters. And that just kind of strengthened my feelings that um, I had a connection to Elaine. And then later when I, when I talked to her again, she said, you know, you and Elaine could have been good friends. You know you're family now. And I soon realized how serious she was about that. On every holiday and birthday, I would get a card from her and Larry, her husband, and they started inviting me to their family reunions. Elaine was born on December the 15th, 1951, in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And after graduating from Orangeburg Calhoun Technical Center in 1972, 
She moved from Orangeburg to Walterboro, and she worked at the Colladon Regional Hospital as a laboratory assistant. She later left the hospital position and accepted a medical assisted position with Dr. Joseph Flowers. In 2022, he is still practicing there. He described Elaine as a hardworking, diligent girl. She would go out of her way to help people. He said, I'm deeply distraught over her murder. It was very difficult for me to accept it. I didn't know of any finer person than Elaine. And then friends shared their personal feelings of knowing Elaine. Elaine became a real part of the community soon after she moved here and made friends easily. She was a dedicated worker, took children to baseball games and sang in the choir at St. Jude's Episcopal Church. She had a cute kind of shyness about her and had the biggest heart. We never heard her say anything unkind about anybody. Elaine was starting to have a lot going for her and recently started taking night classes at Baptist College in Charleston, South Carolina to pursue her college degree. She had also completed some local art courses. One of her dreams was to become an accomplished artist. When I later met Elaine's sister, Eolian, she told me, she said, you know, Elaine was my best friend. She was a tomboy growing up and loved to ride a bike all over Orangeburg. We'd go to Edisto Gardens all the time. She had a lot of church clubs. She loved children. She worked at a nursery with our mom until she graduated from Orangeburg Regional Technical School in 1972. She loved doing all kinds of things with our mom and dad, our mama, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Elaine loved to draw and paint and started taking art courses. She painted pictures and gave them to her family for Christmas before she was killed. On 11.30 p.m. of May 27, 1978, Elaine was attacked. Her roommate, Nancy Hooker, found her along with her boyfriend, Billy O'Brien. Can you tell me what they found? Yes. Elaine had babysat that evening, and she left home around 11.15 p.m., which had a probably put her home arriving around 11.30 p.m. And around 1.45 a.m. was when Billy and Nancy arrived home from the meeting and found her laying unresponsive on the floor in front of the couch, and blood was everywhere, and a metal fire poker was wrapped around her neck. And they did not touch anything. They walked in, they saw her, most of her clothes were missing, and they backed out and went straight to the police department, which was only about a block away. And then the police, of course, the investigators arrived and, and called the pathologist. They also called Dr. Flowers and he came over. I noticed in the pictures too, when I was developing them, she was lying on the floor, and it appeared that when she walked in the front door, which she had locked, she walked in the front door, and the person who attacked Elaine was already in the house because there was a blood drag from the floor to the edge of the couch where she was laying on the floor. And that 
pretty much told investigators that as soon as she went in that door, she was hit and she fell right there and was bleeding. And he drug her to that couch where that's probably where he raped her. Now, it appeared too that he picked up anything that he could put his hands on too to hit her with because there were broken articles in the room, the jugs and the tables were thrown around. And then of course that metal fire poker, they feel like he picked that up and wrapped it around her neck to finish the job, strangle her and kill her. And we later found out that that metal fire poker was given to her by her dad for her protection, I guess she would say, and it would stay by the front door. Now, going back a little bit, Billy O'Brien and Nancy, when they came home, they thought it was a little bit curious. They saw the light on inside the house at the time they arrived around 1.45, and they remembered Elaine saying that she was going to her mom's the next day to her mother's birthday party, and, and her sister and her husband were supposed to meet him there in Orangeburg. They thought that was strange, and when, when they did go to the door, the door was actually locked, so we feel that when the bad guy was in the house and he pulled a landing there when she opened the door, that he locked that door back so she wouldn't get out. They found Elaine's jeans on the ceiling of the porch on the back door, which they figured that's the way he went out because the front door was locked. And that was strange why he would throw her jeans up on the, the roof of the porch. Very strange. But investigators surmise that he was probably in the house because the point of entry they found was at a back window in the back of the house and the glass was knocked in and the glass was on the floor inside the house and he just reached in there and unlocked the window and came in and there were footprints, shoe prints down below the window and the shoe prints were very clear. And, and they photographed them. And again, that's what I photographed as well at SLED uh, when they brought those impressions in there and the negatives and photographs of the shoe prints as well. And then I also, what was included in the crime scene photos that they brought to SLED they also brought lifts of fingerprints and palm prints from the house that they had lifted. Walter Burr did a real good job of processing that scene that night. And um, Slater Crime Scene did not go to the scene that night. They did send the dogs down, but Slater Crime Scene did not go to the scene that night. So we got all the evidence the next Monday morning. Do they think or do they know if he came by vehicle or on foot? I don't think they knew, but they pretty much thought he came on foot. They thought he probably broke into her house to steal stuff. 
Not that he was stalking her. No. Not that he was stalking her. They don't even know if he knew her, but they felt it was probably somebody from around the area that was walking, you know, how people walk the streets at night. And that he decided to break in to try and steal something. Now, Elaine did work for Dr. Flowers. That was another thought, too, that maybe he had met her or knew something about her, maybe even talked to her and her roommate if they were outside, you know, if he's walking the street and they were outside, maybe sunbathing or something or working in the yard. And they just kind of figured, well, he might have known her from the doctor's office and hey, she might have access to the doctor's office so I can get drugs. She might have some home or maybe you know, I can find a key or something to the doctor's office. And that was one interesting thing. If he was there in the process of a burglary, the only thing that investigators could find that was missing out of that house was her key ring that had a car keys on and a key to Dr. Flowell's office. And they were missing. They never found those keys, but a car was still in the driveway, so he didn't steal the car. And and they did, Dr. Flowers and Billy O'Brien that night quickly went over to his office, changed the key on the doctor's front door, the office of the front door, and just in case, they might come over and go into his office looking for drugs. Now, another thing, the point where everything seemed to happen was in the living room of Elaine's home. But her roommate's room was ransacked. And it appeared too that he had gone in there because some of the roommate's panties and undergarments were thrown all over the bed even some of her panties were thrown into the trash can. And she wore bikini panties, little um, figurine bikini panties. So again, that's when they thought possibly he was rummaging through the house to find drugs. And the only other impact was of course at the window where he broke in and the glass was on the floor. And that glass proved later on to be a very important piece of evidence. Did he break it with his hand and cut himself, leave any blood? There was blood around on some of the floor. We didn't see any documentation as to whether there was any on the dining room floor where he had broken into the house at that window but there was a lot of blood in the living room and there were blood drops all over the living room floor as well as the blood when he dragged Elaine from the door next to the couch. Do we know if Elaine fought back? Oh, yes. The pathologist said there were defense wounds on Elaine's knuckles and from what he could tell, she fought like hell to save her life. So there's a possibility that, you know, that was one thought too. Maybe she scratched him 
or maybe she drew blood from him when this was happening and they would possibly look for somebody the next day that had scratches all over them, but they didn't know who they were looking for. But that word was put out in the news to, if you remember your husband or boyfriend or child coming home that, you know, and it had scratches on them, yes, let us know. But yeah, from her bruises, the pathologists even found at the autopsy that there were pattern traits of the spring handle on the fire poker. And when he cleaned her block body, it was a perfect match to the fire, the spring handle on the fire poker. And that's when he said she fought like hell that night. What were some key pieces of evidence collected at the crime scene? Well, Walterboro did a very good job of investigating and processing that scene that night. And what we got at SLED the next day were the crime scene photos, and it was well documented. Also, the pathologists had taken 35 millimeter slides back then, and they were color. He had his own to, to do his study when he did the autopsy the next day. And that was kind of the procedure back then that the pathologist would come to the scene and take the photographs and, and then, of course, do the autopsy the next day. So he'd have those photographs there to uh, relate back to if he needed them and to keep good records for the future. But Walterboro, they collected a lot of fingerprints and they lifted them from the crime scene and they brought them to us on the lift cards. And that's what I had to photograph. The crime scene investigators brought them over to me to photograph and file in my photography folder. And that was the process for all the crime scenes. If they had lift cards, I would photograph the lift cards and then the lift cards would be filed back with Walterboro. Um, they would be, go back to Walter, but then I had my uh, files as well. And when I photographed them, I also printed up a copy and gave to the sled crime scene team. So we kind of had three files that would have had that in. And then, of course, her clothing uh, and the fire poker and any objects that were broken, there was quite a few objects, jugs, and I think there was a smiley face bank, and, and those pieces were sent to SLED too to see if they could get fingerprints off of them. So they did a good job of collecting and also really preserving the evidence through the years, and thank God for that because that was a help for us when we got on it 37 years later. What did the autopsy show from Elaine? Well, the autopsy, it confirmed that the cause of death was from severe head injuries and asphyxiation due to the fire poker that was wrapped around Elaine's neck. And the matter of death was, of course, homicide. Now, the multiple abrasion patterns on Elaine's body matched the spring handle on the poker, which confirmed that she had also received multiple blows from that fire poker, as well as anything else in the room that he 
put his hands on it, looked like weapons of opportunity that he had used because it wasn't just that fire poker. And lacerations to Elaine's right hand and knuckles show that she was putting up a hell of a fight to defend herself against her attacker. And there was confirmed rape. And a large amount of semen was found in Elaine's body. And the pathologist, he collected the blood and the semen to be submitted to SLED for testing. And he was very meticulous about his collection. We have all the documentation of how he collected that semen. And it was anally and vaginally. And he put it in the appropriate color vials. And he signed it over to a SLED agent that was the original SLED agent in the Walterboro area, not the crime scene from SLED. It was the regional agent from Walterboro that he signed it over to carry to SLED to be analyzed in the chemistry department. When exactly did this case go cold? In 1985, this is seven years after the murder, there was a status report in Elaine case file. And it said, no further information or new leads have developed in this investigation. Therefore, this investigator is closing the investigation until new information surfaces. As the need arises, the case will be reopened. The case is closed, but of course we know a cold case is never closed. And as he said, if new information does come forth, then the case could be opened again. But cold cases are never closed. Who was the man that they fixated on? From day one, they actually had one person that was immediately focused on. And his name was Ronald Allen. And Ronald Allen lived just about a block away from Elaine in a trailer and he was big, he was muscular, he had a lot of DUIs and abuse. Law enforcement knew him. And they just focused on him from day one. They even went down there that morning and talked to him and said, you know anything about Elaine's death? And he said, no, I really didn't know the girl. I knew she lived down there and, and they, interviewed him, they interviewed his wife, and we did not find out until later on that they did not write a written statement or record an interview from either him or his wife. But they focused on Ronald Allen because he was muscular and he did have a lot of run-ins with the police department. And he was, was what they call a backyard mechanic. He had a horse back there. He worked on cars. Ronald Allen loved to work on cars. And, and he, we felt like he could pretty much lift them himself. He, he just looked so strong. But he had a horse where he, he could horse them up. And he also had a workout bench in his front yard that he worked out a lot. And they just figured, 
okay, with all these run-ins, you know, you look really good. And they focused on Ronald Allen from day one. And they never could get anything on him. They supposedly looked at the fingerprints and also the shoe prints below the windows, and they did not match up to Ronald Allen, but that did not keep them from being tunnel-focused on Ronald Allen. And he finally left town in a matter of months, but his wife did not. His wife stayed there. She was in uh, nursing training, so she stayed there. He moved away? Ronald Allen moved away. And that really made him think again, hey, he's good for this because he's gone. That's all they had on Ronald Allen was their minds. Now in 1984, six years after the murder, two inmates came forward and they wanted to talk to law enforcement. They said they knew who killed Elaine Fogel, that nurse, and investigators went over and talked to them back in 1984. They took the reports and they really knew a lot about the case. They knew some of the information about the case and investigators said, well, you know, some of this has been in the paper, but not all of it. And they took their statements and they checked them out fingerprint wise as well and nothing matched with them. So that kind of just went back on the shelf, but they did still have their statements in the case file. And later on when they, when Gene got on it, he went over and interviewed these inmates and he pretty much found out from talking to them that although they knew a lot about the case, they wanted a little reduced sentence he couldn't find anything on them either, so they were pretty much cleared. And they didn't ever come forth with a name or anything like that? They threw out some names, from what I understand. We never found anything in the report of whose names they threw out. And one thing that Gene found out from talking um, Corporal Johnson, one thing that Corporal Johnson found out from talking with them was that they told him that they were laying in wait in Elaine's house when she came in, in the closet. And we, he knew that wasn't right because we had already found that the point of entry was the back window and they weren't laying in wait. Whoever killed Elaine, they met her at the front door because they locked that front door after she got in there. And it was just talk on the street. And they, you know, they may have heard the real guy talking about it, you know? Mm -hmm. But they never did um, arrest anybody for it. And they, they just thought these guys wanted to reduce sentence. So from the time this case went cold, how long was it from the time this case went cold from, to the time you retired? Okay, uh, let's see. I retired in 2001, so that was 23 years after Elaine's murder. And all through the years, I couldn't get it out of my mind. And nothing really came forth to SLED at that time. And Walterboro, of course, it was still cold then too. 
So we, did, we didn't hear anything. But in 2001, I retired. And at that time, DNA databases had come into play and fingerprint databases. The new technology was really ripping up that time. So they actually called me back out of retirement when, when Walter Burrow was going to look at this case again and they asked SLED to assist. They called me back out of retirement to maybe possibly look at the photographs of the shoe prints or anything that now advanced technology might have that we could enhance these photographs to possibly help the case. And um, so I went back over and, and we worked on some of the photographs, but nothing ever came of it. But that same time when they got back on this, Ronald Allen is still on their minds. So they're gonna find Ronald Allen. And by God, they found him up in Tennessee. And they decided, okay, we're going up there. We're gonna talk to Ronald Allen. We know Ronald Allen did this. Well, by the time they got to Ronald Allen, Ronald Allen is deceased. And his family lived up there and they, they said, you know, he had been into drugs a lot. And when he passed away, they did an autopsy and that clicked in the investigator's mind. Okay, let's go find the pathologist who did this autopsy if they did a blood sample from Ronald Allen. And by the grace of God, I call this one of the hand of God moments. Pathologists had taken two vials of blood from Ronald Allen because they didn't know yet. It was a kind of a suspicious circumstances as to whether he'd overdosed or whatever. And they did allow the SLED agents to bring one of the vials back to SLED so that they could get a DNA sample on Ronald Allen. So now SLED has a DNA sample on Ronald Allen, but they do not have any blood or any semen from the crime scene to get a DNA from because the semen samples are missing and all the blood that they had tested in the past was the lens. So we still don't know if Ronald Allen did it. We're at a point now, we have nothing to give us any DNA, although DNA is really becoming popular now. So the case went back on the shelf again unsolved. And what happened to the semen samples and all? We do not know. At that time in 2001, investigators did go back to the chemistry department and every department at Slade and every department, they looked through all the files and they could not find it. They could not find the evidence in the evidence room of the semen samples, which remember I told you that the pathologist had actually handed them over to a sled agent to carry to sled. And apparently they never got there because the chemistry department did not have record of those samples in their evidence login. And sled had a very, very tight evidence login at that time as they still do. And, and it, we would log it into a logging book then they would make a little index card on every piece of evidence that came in. 
We had to have a taking sheet. The investigator that brought it in had to sign that sheet. And then the sled had to put a time stamp on, on the sheet when it came in that they logged it in and a date. Now, here's the interesting thing. We did find a logging sheet made out by the investigator who the pathologist signed it over to, and we had a chain of custody on that. We had the signing sheets, the chain of custody that he logged them over to. There was a signing sheet on that, but it was blank on the top. It didn't have a date as when it went in the sled. It didn't have a timestamp as it went in the sled, but the blank sheet was there. And sometimes that would happen. They'd make out the, the logging sheet before, and then when they got it to sled, that's when they would do the signatures and get the timestamp and all. But the semen samples could not be found. And no other blood belonged to anybody that but Elaine, that they had. So how did you finally solve this case? Now, all through the years, Elaine's family tried to keep in touch with Walterboro, and some of her extended family, actually one of her cousins became a lawyer, and they moved to Walterboro. And they tried to work with the Walterboro Police Department as well, and you know, maybe I can help you now that I'm down here and, and I've got some legal background. And Walterboro says, you know, we're doing all we can right now. And they pretty much just said, you know, we don't need your help right now. But the family didn't stop. They kept trying to get involved and stay involved with this to see if anything was going on. But all through the years up until even 2001, all they could tell them was nothing new. And also in 2001, when I retired, I began writing books that chronicle cases that I assisted with during my tenure at Slade. And uh, in my third book in 2007, um, I included a chapter, The Unsolved Murder of Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel. And that's when Elaine's family came into my life. I'm retired now, but I'm not an active law enforcement officer, but Elaine's family did ask me at that time if I would still help them try to pursue Elaine's case and see if there's anything that could be done. And on my own, I contacted some key players. I'm not official, but I'm nosy. And I was determined, I knew Elaine's case could be solved. The, New technology is coming on now. And also, they, they did a profile. You know, we had profiling then, too. The sled profiler showed that it was probably a white male, age 24 to 30, married, extremely strong to be able to bend fire poker around her neck, probably lived close to the scene, likely to have walked. He may have seen the victim and roommate outside the home. Excessive drinking, may have been drinking prior to the crime and or using marijuana. Local arrest he had and probably for assaults and he had a big problem with women. Now, who does that sound like? Ronald Allen, 
And that was back in 1989 that that profile was doing. So that kept their mind on Ronald Allen. And now the, the new DNA in fingerprint technology is really being used in criminal investigations now. And again, I'm retired. I'm not an active law enforcement officer, but the family asked for my assistance along with them to get investigators to possibly look at Elaine's case again. And on my own, I contacted some key players in the case and I made contact with assistant solicitor, Steve Knight in Walterboro. And I asked for his guidance in possibly moving forward with a new investigation. And I knew assistant solicitor Steve Knight. I knew him professionally as assisting him sometimes with photographs that they needed him on a case down in the 14th circuit. I also knew him as a personal friend. So I asked for his assistance with this new investigation. And I asked him, I said, Steve, I said, you know, we've been looking at this thing for all these years and I understand that Walterboro has some good evidence down there. They Sled looked at it again in 2001, and he was real interested in it. He remembered the case, and he said, Rita, he said, let me see what I can do. So I got a call back from him the next day, and he said he had had his investigator go over and look at the evidence that Walterboro had. And he said, Rita, they have got a room full of evidence over there. And he said, I'm going to send you some, and he said, you get it to SLED and tell SLED to do whatever they have to do with this to start this investigation up again. And he did send me some documents. He sent me the autopsy report and just statements and, and information that they had gathered through the years and also a list of most of the evidence they still had there. Well, I called SLED and told them about what I had and asked if, if maybe I could come over and present all this to them that the solicitor had given me and they didn't respond back to me. So we go now to about 2009, that is 31 years after the murder. This is two years after meeting Elaine's family. I was looking around on Facebook and that's when Facebook was just kind of starting up. And, and I saw that SLED had opened a cold case unit. So I decided to meet with them where Elaine's case was the top case on the Facebook post that they had. And that anybody has infom any information on any of these cases to contact us. Well, I contacted the cold case unit and by God, everyone in that cold case unit I had worked with while at SLED. And they were interested. I met with them and I took them everything the solicitor had given me and I took them information that I had gathered from Elaine's family that they had told me about this and information that I had gathered through the years. I had actually gone and talked to Billy O'Brien on my own and he gave me some very good information on, on what was found and what he'd heard kind of through the grapevines down there and everything. So that resulted in the cold case unit investigators and the analyst, they went to Walterboro 
got the evidence, brought it back to SLED, and re-examined the evidence that they had so that they could see now if technology had caught up to anything that they could get the DNA or anything from. And again, they were looking for those semen samples, but the semen samples were never found. Now, being retired, I didn't have access to anything that was going on at, with SLED's investigation, that cold case unit. I was curious, of course, but not being certified, I didn't want to bug them or, and here's another chance encounter I had at a grocery store up in Columbia. I went out one day and went to the grocery store and I was going through the checkout line and I heard, hey Rita, and I turned around and it was one of the cold case investigators, Natalie Crosland. And I said, well, hey Natalie, and she, she said, hey, she said, I just want to tell you that we are working on Elaine's case and we went and got all the, the evidence and brought back, we were reanalyzing everything in there. And she said, I think we found something that possibly we can move it forward. And that was the end of it. Uh, of course, she couldn't tell me anything because I'm not certified, but I could tell she wanted to and I'm sitting there and I wanted to. So, but this made me feel good because, okay, they're working on it now. I know they're working on it now. Well, the bubble burst again. Several weeks later, I get a call from Agent Crossland, and she informs me that the sled cold case unit has been disbanded. And she was transferred to another department, vehicle crimes, and I'm going, oh, Jesus, what's more important, a stolen car or a murder? But I realize, you know, cold cases now are not priority. Cases today are priority. So she told me that, Rita, really, we have found something that we think Mike could move this case forward. And they've taken me off of it, of course, since it's this band. But would you call SLED and see if maybe you could get through and maybe they could have you come in and assist as a retired SLED agent? And you and I could work on this case because I, I think we could I think we could do something with it. And I, I did call SLED and they did not respond back to me again. Elaine's case was back on the shelf unsolved. But I still remained in contact with Elaine's sister and Eolian and now her adopted daughter, Melissa. And Elaine was always in our conversations. And I told them about the cold case unit and that they said they may have something to move it forward, but they're not actively working on it now. Now, nothing has really conspired till 37 years after the murder. And on May the 27th, 2015, this is the 37th day, year to date, of Lane's death. Melissa and Eolian called me. And Melissa told me, you know, every year on this date, Mama picks up your book and she reads Elaine's case, the unsolved one in my book. And she said, today 
we decided we're going to try and call Walter Burrow again to see if anything's going on. Mama is saying that Elaine is saying, don't give up on me, sis. Don't give up on me. And she said, what do you think? I said, well, you know, I think it's a great idea. I said, we've still got all, all the information, the documentation, and now the book is out there. And she said, well, give me a minute. So in a few minutes, she calls me back. She said, Miss Rita, you better sit down. She said, because I just called Walter Burrow and they've got a new investigator on the scene, Corporal Gene Johnson. And he's been looking at it and he is pursuing this now. And he said he is really actively in work, is working on it. And they told him about me and me helping them through the years. And he said, yeah, I know about Miss Rita. He says, actually, my wife brought me a copy of Elaine's story from her book. A lady at work had copied it for her and given it to my wife for me to read and said, honey, this is an unsolved case in Walterboro. Maybe you can solve it now. Nobody has in 37 years. And I call that another hand to God moment because he read the story and he saw my name in there and that I had actually worked on the case from day one. Well, he picks up the telephone and he calls me. And that's when that wonderful man came into my life, Corporal Gene Johnson. And he asked me to assist him with the case. I told him that I'm not active now. You'll have to get permission from the police chief. He said, Rita, I've already done all that. He said, anything that it takes to, to get this solved, we want you to help us with it. And that's when I started working with Corporal Johnson. And it was like instant light when we saw each other. I mean, maybe it was love. He looked like a big muscular teddy bear and he had a, a heart of gold and his passion for this was just overwhelming. And I told him too that I'd had a quest for this for 37 years. And I said, you know, maybe we can work together and find what we need. He said, well, I'm praying to God that we can. And he said, I feel like we can. That's when Elaine's murder investigation was finally, after almost four decades, off of the shelf and back on the forefront. So we started going back to the beginning and we had to, a lot of evidence was there, but it wasn't in any particular order. So we had to pretty much put it in order. We had a lot of duplicates that Walterboro and Sled had gathered over the years. So we had to just kind of get rid of some of those duplicates so that we could have our story right here in front of us and have all the case files that we could look over. The biggest thing where we were trying to locate anything that maybe had DNA on it at this point, that was the big DNA. So in, I knew that there were semen samples in this case, and he knew it now from reading the reports as well. So we really concentrated on those semen samples and trying to find them to see if we could get a full DNA profile of anything from the crime scene, but we could find, again, no documentations 
to help us locate those semen swabs. But we did find a sled report from 2010 reporting that the blood found on a pair of panties, mind you, I said blood, not semen, blood found on a pair of panties on the couch from the crime scene was a mixture of male DNA and female DNA. And I gasped, I went, okay, 2010. And we looked at the report and I said, this is what Natalie Croswell was trying to tell me, but she couldn't, that they had found blood on the pounds and panties on the couch and they had a mixed DNA profile for it. And in that report, it said that the female profile of the mixture was, of course, a match to Elaine, and the male profile was still unknown. And the male profile was entered into CODIS at that time in 2010, but it did not throw out a match. And sometimes mixed DNA is a weaker sample, and being mixed with male and female, it's not a full DNA profile like it would be if it was a full sample from the bad guy or a full sample from anybody. And sometimes it just doesn't kick it back out. So if the bad guy's DNA was in there, there's a possibility that it did not kick it back out in 2010. The DNA profile of the male portion of this mixed DNA was checked back against Ronald Allen's profile that SLED had on file now that they had gotten from the pathologist in Tennessee, and it was not a match to Ronald Allen. And if you do it eyes on, you can tell at that time that it's not a match to Ronald Allen, even with it being mixed. None of the markings was a match to any markings from Ronald Allen's profile. So now Ronald Allen is pretty much cleared. He's out of the picture. So that gave us one thing ahead of him. So now we have that unknown male DNA found at the crime scene that we can work with, but we still have no suspects to compare it to. So again, we go back to the beginning and we review everything again. Corporal Johnson and I did that a lot. We go back to the beginning and I'll tell anybody now, if you get to a stopping point, go back to the beginning. Sometimes you can read over one report 10 times and the 11th time you're gonna find a word in there that'll just put a light bulb on in your head. Oh my gosh, look at this. And that's what we did. But we're at a point now that most everybody that Gene re-interviewed and any statements in the case file or in your reports, we were just at a stopping point. And we really needed some we needed a DNA profile. We needed a name of somebody. Even this DNA profile on the panties, it put 
somebody at that scene, we still needed a name to know who it belonged to. And it wasn't hitting in CODIS. And we didn't have any anybody else that Gene had gotten DNA from. That didn't match up. So we went back to the beginning and then the bombshell. On August the 20th, 2015, I'll never forget that morning. Gene and I had talked up into the night and I said, well, let's wake up in the morning. We'll go back to the beginning again. And that's exactly where I went. I went back to the beginning when that case file came across my desk. I said, okay, I got the film. I developed and processed the film. And then the fingerprint list, palm print list, I photographed and I went, Oh, Jesus, a light bulb went on in my head, and I went, we have been so focused on finding the DNA in semen samples, we haven't even thought about the fingerprints and palm prints. And I quickly picked up the telephone, and I called my good buddy at SLED. He was one that I got through to, and he, uh, he never hesitated when I called. And I told him that I was officially on this case, and he, he said, Rita, I remember you talking about this case when, when you weren't here. And Tom and I had worked together for about 15 years. And he said, what can I do for you? And I told him, I said, okay, we have got some DNA now from the crime scene on a pair of pants as it's mixed. Now we need a name. I remember photographing fingerprint and palm print lists from that scene and filed them in my case file over in the photography department. And he said, yeah, your old photographer files are still over there. I use them sometime. I said, please go over. And he's already on his way now. He knows what he's gonna do because Tom is like me. He loves to get the bad guy off the street. And he said, I'll call you back in a few. Within an hour, he calls me back and he says that he has found a palm print in that file, it's an old Polaroid negative, he said, but the quality was good. And he ran it through the automatic fingerprint identification system, and it shot back a match to a James Willie Butterfield, a 58-year-old black male. And he says, does that name mean anything to you? Do you Have you seen it in the case file? And I said, no, but I bet... Corporal Johnson does, because he's been living over there all his life. And he had worked for the sheriff's department before he came to the police department here and got on this case. So Tom called Corporal Johnson, and Corporal Johnson called me right back. And he said, God, Riga, he said, I know Willie Butterfield. I arrested him when I was at the sheriff's department back in 2002. And I arrested him for an attack and assault on another lady and a rape on another lady. He said, so now I just need to find Willie Butterfield. He might not even be alive, but I know he's got some family here, so I'll try and find Willie Butterfield. And within about, I think it was the next day or either later on that day, Tom also called Colburn Johnson back and they had found fingerprints that came back to a match from Willie Butterfield as well that they had entered into APHIS from, from my photography file. And that 
happened to be fingerprints on the glass that was broken and was on the floor of the dining room as he came through the window. So we now kind of believe that Willie Butterfield cut himself when he was coming through that window after he broke that glass. And that's how his blood got mixed with Elaine's blood when he probably removed her panties. And I mean, if the bad guy's blood and the victim's blood is mixed together, the bad guy had to touch her blood at some point. And that's how it got mixed together. So Carpal Johnson did locate Willie Butterfield's sister and she told him that Willie was in a mental institution in Columbia, South Carolina. And then Gene decided, okay, well, we're gonna have to go to Columbia and talk to Mr. Willie Butterfield. So they did, they went, you know, another investigator went and interviewed Willie and of course being mentally incompetent, he had to get permission to interview him. And when he walked in, he asked Butterfield, do you recognize me? And Butterfield looked at him and said, yes, I do. And he was referring back to when he'd arrested him back in 2002. I want to talk to you about a girl, Elaine Fogel. Did you ever know Elaine Fogel? No. And he, of course, read him his rights. And, and he asked him to sign, sign the waiver. And he said, I can't read or write. And he said, OK, if you can just put your ex here and my investigator here, he'll, he'll witness it. And they go through an interview, and when they finished, Willie Butterfield, he initialed where he was supposed to initial, not with an X, but his initials. And then he signed where he was supposed to sign, not with an X, but his signature. So Gene's going, hmm, I wonder if this guy's just playing us here. So they finished the interview, and they did get a DNA sample. And Gene takes it straight over to Sled. And now that we've got a name, we've got that fingerprint that puts him in the house, they ran it in a matter of hours, and it came back in about a day or so, and it was a match to Willie Butterfield. So Gene has to talk to the solicitor, okay, here's what we got. And the solicitor said, you can't use that because he was mentally incompetent when you got this, and Gene, he said, well, yeah, but he signed his name. No, you can't use that. Well, of course you can't, if it would ever go to court. Carpal Johnson and I did see where in 2010, Willie Butterfield was arrested in Collin County for his part in assisting with the disposal of human remains. He assisted this lady with disposing human remains that possibly... Both of them helped in the murder of this guy that was found in a motel and then found in the trunk of her car when they were disposing of it. So in 2010, SLED and Calden County Sheriff's Office arrested Willie Butterfield, and that's when his palm prints, fingerprints, and DNA were entered into the APHIS and the CODIS database. 
And the solicitor said, okay, he said, SLED should have on file his DNA from 2010 before he was deemed incompetent. Get that profile, have them run that profile with the mixed DNA on the panties and see if that is a match. And it was enough, and it was a match to Willie Butterfield. So we now have Willie Butterfield's palm, fingerprints from the scene. We have this DNA, which is checked twice, which um, the first time, you know, it, it, it would not have made it to court, but we have it here that it was a solid match to him because it was a solid profile. And then the mixed profile was enough matches in that profile to say Willie Butterfield is our guy. So they now had Willie Butterfield. He was just a total match to the blood on the panties at the crime scene. Did you ever get to physically see Willie Butterfield? I did not see Willie Butterfield until the bond hearing in court. And that was pretty much enough for me. Um, Corporal Johnson and his assistant investigator went up and interviewed him. And of course, he told me all about the interview and, and his statement. And But the only time I saw Willie Butterfield was the bond hearing in court. And that was enough for me to see Mr. Butterfield. And here are some of my thoughts that went through my head as I was sitting in the bond hearing with Eolian and Melissa. And as I said, this was the first time we had seen Willie Butterfield. I focused on his hands. These were the hands that so brutally attacked and bludgeoned Elaine Fogel to death. And horrible to say, the last thing she probably saw while taking her last breath. He ended the life of this innocent, sweet girl who never did anything to him. So many times during the investigation, the word strong came up, alluding that the person who did this had to be strong enough to bend the iron fire poker around Elaine's neck. He was physically strong, perhaps, back then, but today, seeing Willie Butterfield for the first time, I thought this evil person was the epitome of weakness. And I thought again, Mr. Butterfield, these are the same hands that left your palm print, fingerprints in Elaine's home when you were murdered and raped her. Those hands that caused an unspeakable horror to Elaine were the same hands that left a silent witness at her murder scene. You had no idea that you left your signature for us that night. Those prints were yours and gave us your name. You had no knowledge or thoughts that no two people have the same fingerprints, palm prints, or footprints. They're only unique to one person. And in this case, Mr. Butterfield, that person is you. You shined your name to one of the most brutal and horrific crimes in the state of South Carolina's history. One that this charming low country town of Walterboro in the state of South Carolina would rather not claim. You got away with so much evil for decades in your life. And now you're old and evaluations show that you are not mentally competent to stand trial for your crimes. Somehow the scales of justice just don't seem to balance with that.
We are now going to pause for a brief word from our sponsors. Are you looking for an extremely fun and stylish up-to-date salon? Then the color bar is the place for you. Our slogan is too glam to give a damn. The color bar knows their colors and can slay anything. Located in Chapin, South Carolina, near the heart of Lake Murray, our stylists stay up to date on all styles, cuts, and colors. Call for your free consultation at 803-932-HAIR. That's 803-932-HAIR. We can't wait to meet you. Are you considering a move in 2022? Then this message is for you. Meet George Simmons from EXP Realty. He is the top agent on one of the top real estate teams serving Lake Murray and the surrounding counties here in South Carolina. After serving 20 years in the military and 10 years in law enforcement, George continues to serve the Lake Murray community by providing superior real estate representation. Call today for your free home valuation at 803-429-3337 or visit online at buyorsellakemurrayhomes.com. We look forward to serving you. What was it like growing up in Orangeburg? Wonderful. <laughs> we had that stubble gorn, but I mean, like, they were just going to us. We'd go down there and ride bicycles and play in the river and play up there on the playground and all like that. Were you pretty close to Elaine? Oh, we were like two peas in the pod. You'd think we were twins, even though we were three years of difference in age. But where she went, I went where I went, she went. What year did... Elaine graduate? 1970. And where did she attend college? It was Orangeburg Technical College back then, but it's Orangeburg Wilkinson now. Calhoun. Orangeburg Calhoun Technical College, there by the hospital. Okay, and she was working in the medical field? Yes, she was. Do you, do you remember what she was doing? A lab technician. The one that she didn't blow us up because ever since she was little, she would get all kind of chemicals mixing together to see what they could do. <laughs> up until uh, May 30th, did Elaine really have anybody that you would say was out to get her? Any enemies? No. She was well-loved. Take her shirt off her back and give to you. And then on May 30th of 1978, can you tell me anything about that day? May 30th? It's actually May 28th. May 28th. Let me... Where, where am I getting that from? That's my mama's birthday. May 28th. She got killed on my mama's birthday. And the months of May are really hard for mama because, you know, it's Mother's Day, Elaine's murder day, Mother's Day, everything's all right there in that month. And when I first met her, I didn't know the whole, you know, I didn't really know her history. Because for me, I met her through a, a family friend of mine that was actually one of my ex-boyfriends. 
that he was staying with her and he had invited us over to a cookout. And that's how I actually met him. So how amazing is it that this case was actually solved? Oh, like way the world took off of my shoulders. I got where you walk around, people forget about the victims' families that's left behind. And you walk and you say, I wonder if he did, I wonder if he did. I wonder if they hired somebody to put a contract, as they say, out if they're going to get, and you just constantly looking over your shoulder, don't know, scared mostly all the time. And this is like, I could kind of halfway breathe now. At least we know we got a name and a face to go with who done it. Rita worked really hard even after her retirement because mm-hmm. she felt such a connection with your sister. How many days exactly, how many years exactly from the time it happened to the time the, the cold 38 case? 38 years. 38 years. And in between that, in 1991 or two, 92, we had a black man that broke in on my mama and went through the same thing, except he didn't kill my mom and went through the same thing that happened to Elaine. So it's like it just all happened all right back over again and the case hadn't been solved yet. So we were having to deal with both things. And that case still ain't solved. Yeah, my grandma's case still ain't solved. Yeah, I still got an unsolved case. They don't think it was the same person? Nope, not the same person. Is there anything that you would like to say to Rita? I love Rita to death. She was the one that done the photographic stuff when the case first happened. She's the one who developed the pictures and all. And she has worked with that case ever since. And whenever she retired, she... Track me down to FBI. You can't hide from the law. Uh, <laughs> but she tracked me down to get the okay to write the book that she wanted to write on the story. And I told her, yes. She said, I can't write everything because it hasn't been solved. But if it ever gets solved, I'm going to come out of retirement and write, finish up the book and write the whole story. And I said, well, I appreciate it. And I love it. She's like a sister. She's family. Uh, my whole family, my cousins and all have just adopted her. She's family. I know you're very thankful for her. Yeah, I yes, her, I am. I told her this morning, I said, Nicole, I'm going to be here at 11.30. She said, well, tell her I said, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yep, she's a good one. Man, I didn't know you had another yeah. cold case from 1992. Mm-hmm. Golly. That was right there in Orangeburg, though, right? Yeah, that one happened in Orangeburg. And they said, we know the whole case about your sister, but we promised you we're going to solve this. And I said, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, it still wasn't solved in 2015 when I started on Elaine, so. Well, it's 2022, and it still ain't solved, so. (laughs) And you can't get them to return your calls. We need more people like Rita. Mm Mm-hmm. That we do. We need more people like Rita. 
and like Jean, that will not turn it loose. They'll keep every spare minute they get, they'll work on it. 